guys were here on Sunday morning, Alexia did the same thing, um, so it happens to the best of us. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay, I need to stop touching it. Can everyone hear me? Okay. <laughs> Appreciate you. Um, hi, guys. My name is Rachel, if I haven't met you. Um, good to be here with you. Somebody told me that with this like plaid thing that I look like Drew, and some people would be offended by that, but I think Drew has great style, so I'm going to take it as a compliment, Micah. I don't know where she is, but um, it is good to be with you guys. We have been going through the book of First Peter this semester, and the last time I taught, actually, I introed the book, so I don't know if I'm just good for like intros and closers, but whatever it is, I'll take it. I'm really excited to teach um, the last chapter of First Peter with you guys, but I know it's been a minute um, since we've been here. Randy and I were talking the other day, and we were like, Thanksgiving break has made it feel like a month has gone by since the last time we were together, so I want to jog your memory a little bit about what we've talked about in 1 Peter. And while I'm doing that, you can just be turning to 1 Peter. You can get out your phones, your Bible app, whatever. 1 Peter is where we'll be. And it's where we've been. And Peter has, I I would argue, been answering and asking this question, how do we live faithfully in light of the gospel? And he answers this question for a variety of situations and scenarios for his readers. He talks about, um, what does it look like for us to live faithfully in suffering? So we know that this Gentile audience is experiencing suffering, and Peter instructs them to rejoice because suffering produces character and faith. He tells them to be holy with a life that witnesses to God's character. He tells them to be sober-minded and alert, knowing that the enemy is at work, but Jesus is coming back to judge rightly. He also tells them, what does it look like for us to live faithfully in these different relationships that we have? He talks about submitting to our authorities, to the government, to, in marriage, it didn't work, I was going to do two, 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 but it's in marriage, so, Um, submitting in marriage, submitting to, that's what it was, employers, bosses, their earthly masters, Um, and then tonight we're going to talk about what it looks like to submit to elders in the church. Um, And so Peter has been answering these questions. How do we live faithfully in light of the gospel in these different situations, whether it's suffering or navigating these different relationships where submission is our response? So I want you to have those themes, those things that we've seen throughout 1 Peter, and be looking for those as we're finishing up um, in 1 Peter 5. Um, I didn't know Amy was going to pray, and I was going to pray, so I'm going to pray. Um, And then we'll jump in. So, Almighty God, you are the Father of all mercies, and it is to you that we submit our lives. Tonight, Father, I ask um, that we would come to this text with a readiness to obey, a readiness to submit to who you are, trusting that you are good. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so if you're not at 1 Peter 5, you've had a very long time to get there. So 1 Peter 5, we're going to jump in. We'll do this in sections. We're doing the whole chapter tonight, but we're going to break it down in sections, so don't freak out. Okay, so beginning in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder 
and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Okay, we're going to pause right there. Anytime we jump into a text, we want to know where we're coming from, what is surrounding it, what the context is. And so, just to jog your memories, I was like, what were we even talking about before Thanksgiving? I don't remember. Uh, Alec taught us about, um, Peter says, the fiery ordeal is coming, um, that these Christians will face trials, and they will face suffering, and that they should be prepared, but to take heart, because God will judge rightly, and that judgment will start with those in the household of faith, those who are in the family of God. So that's where Peter's coming from in 4, 17 through 19. And then he turns to the elders who are in the household of faith, and he says, I have specific instructions for you. So these elders are the men who shepherd God's flock. They are the leaders of the church. These are who Peter is speaking to. And he identifies himself as a fellow elder. And that's really interesting because if you ever hear these language, these words together in the same sentence, Peter, shepherd, sheep, lambs, our minds should immediately go to a conversation that happens between Peter and Jesus in John 21. My mind didn't immediately go there. I had to do the cross-reference. I told Randy, I can't believe I didn't think about that. And she was like, it's fine. So if your mind didn't go there, it's fine. Randy said so. Um, so this conversation takes place between Peter and Jesus after Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And more importantly to this conversation, it happens after Peter has denied Jesus. So as Jesus is being tested and tried before the religious leaders, Peter is denying that he ever knew Jesus. He's denying the power of Jesus. He's denying Jesus as the Messiah. And so this conversation happens after Jesus has been raised to life. Peter has been a witness to that. And in this conversation in John 21, Jesus asked Peter three times. See the three and the three? He denied him three times. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And each time, Peter says, yes, you know that I do. You know that I love you. And Jesus' response to him is, feed my lambs. Jesus says, feed my lambs. The second time, he says, shepherd my flock. And then the third time, he says again, feed my lambs. So when Peter says, I'm a fellow elder, a fellow shepherd, that's coming right out of this conversation with Jesus, where Jesus calls him to shepherd the flock. And now Peter looks to those men who are leading the churches that he's writing to, and he says, this is my instruction to you as a fellow elder. So Peter gives three specific instructions to these men. And he does it in this way. He says, not this, but this. So he says, shepherd, not out of compulsion or obligation, but willingly, or yes, willingly. Then he says, Shepherd, not out of greed, but eagerly, with pure motives. Then he says, the last one is not lording your authority over them, but leading by example, leading by humble example. 
And so these are the instructions he gives to the elders. And John Calvin, raise your hand if you've ever heard of John Calvin. Okay, that's 50-50. He's been dead a long time. So that's good for him. That's good for him. Um, John Calvin, he's a famous uh, theologian and all these things. He says, um, clearly I don't know very well all these things. You guys know, 50% of you know. Um, He identifies these three vices, if you will, these three sins that elders and church leadership need to watch out for. And we just talked about them, but this is the way that he classifies them. He says um, sloth or laziness, doing things just because this is what I have to do. And it just sounds like a teenager getting ready for school. That's what sloth sounds like. Oh, do I have to do this? Right now, are you sure? Like, okay, I'll do it just because I have to. Um, That is sloth that elders need to watch out for. The second vice that Calvin talks about is greed. So seeking personal fame or gain or acclaim. I'm talking about the Baptist tradition. Making all those rhyme, you're welcome. Um, So to watch out for greed. And then the last vice is lust for power. So seeking to um, govern by manipulation or politics or threats. And Peter says, do not lead this way. Don't do this, but instead lead diligently, not out of compulsion. Lead willingly, not seeking selfish gain. And lead by example. Lead with humility. And he says that the reward for elders, for faithful elders, is an unfading crown of glory. So the reward for elders is not in this life. It's not getting paid. It's not having people know your name or know who you are. The reward for faithful leadership in the church is an unfading crown of glory when Jesus returns. Their reward is eternal. So after speaking to the elders, Peter then says, to you who are younger. So this is a switch. He's talking from, to the elders, and now he says, to you who are younger. And there's some debate over whether Peter is talking about literally you who are younger, the youths, the young people. Uh, I can't take that seriously. Sometimes older people call us the youths, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. Um, but... Is he talking specifically to people who are young in age? And is he telling them, like, hey, respect your elders, like, be respectful to your elders, people who are older than you? I don't think so. And I don't think so because the scholars who studied don't think so. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. Um, Peter starts by talking to the elders, and then he turns and he says, to you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Um, and he could be... Sp- speaking specifically to people who are young in age, but scholars believe he's talking about everyone who is not an elder be subject to the elders. And what this means is that they are called to submit willingly to their authority as these elders lead faithfully according to the instructions that Peter has just given. Because these elders are following the chief shepherd, and we who are not elders, I don't think there's any elders in here, um, we are subject to the elders. And he, I don't think he's talking to just young people, but this one commentator is like, he might, he's probably not talking to just young people, but it is young people who seem to struggle the most with submission. And I was like, mm, that stung a little bit. I'm a young person. And he's right. 
Like, we, I, I'll just speak for myself, I tend to think I know what's best, and so I think Peter a little bit is like, listen, all of you who are not elders, you need to sub- submit to the elders, and especially you young hooligans who think you know better, you need to submit to the elders. So, I, I don't know. I think Peter would like, yeah, that's what I meant. So, um, now he turns, he says elders, he says everyone who is not an elder, and now he turns and he says to all of you. So we're going to pick up in the back half of verse 5. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. So imagine Peter is in a room like this. The elders are over here, and he speaks to the elders. He gives them the instructions. And he said, everybody who's not an elder over here, be subject to the elders. And now he says to all of you, clothe yourself with humility. He tells them, why they're supposed to clothe themselves with humility, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a quote from Proverbs 3, 34. And all throughout scripture, we see this theme, that God opposes the proud, but exalts the humble. That God sees the prideful from far off, and yet he brings the humble close to himself. All throughout scripture, we see this theme, and there's something that God loves about humility. I think maybe it's because the humble trust in God, and God delights to be trusted in like a good parent. Peter then says it again, in case you missed it. In verse 6, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Get that again, humble and then exalted. Casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. And it's important to note that this idea of humility is not passive. We don't just end up being humble people. We don't just drift towards humility. It's an active command. Peter says, clothe yourself with humility. That is something that we do. We clothe ourselves with humility. And then he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Both of those are active things that we're called to lean into. We're going to talk more about that in the second half. So now Peter switches. He says, be humble. And now he's going to give them a warning. He says, be sober-minded, be alert. That should sound familiar. He's said that before. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. So Peter tells them, you have an enemy. Be aware. Be alert to the attacks of this enemy. And Peter just gave us this imagery that we are God's flock. We are the sheep. And then he uses this lion imagery for the devil, for our enemy, for Satan. And I don't know if you guys have ever watched one of those like 
planet Earth, or Blue Earth. I haven't watched very many, but I used to live with Madison Trisbiak. She's a vet. She's going to be a vet, and it was always on. And it's always like the sheep are over here, or whatever the vulnerable animal is. We are they. Um, and then there's the predator, the lion. And it's always like somebody with an awesome accent, right? They're like, the lion waits in store. <laughs> and they're going to go get, go get the sheep. Um, you're welcome. I've really been working that up. Um, <laughs> I hope you liked it. Um, that's all I can do. But right, it's the lion. The lion is always coming. They're always attacking the weakest members when the flock is the least suspecting. That's the image that Peter gives us. He says that we have an adversary who's like a lion looking for who he can devour. But Peter does not say, be afraid. In fact, he gives us what we're supposed to do. He continues in verse 9. He says, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Peter doesn't say, be afraid of the lion, even though you are sheep. (laughs) He says, resist the devil, standing firm, knowing that your brothers and sisters all over the world are experiencing the same suffering, the same attacks, as they are seeking to live faithfully in obedience to the Lord. And this section on humility and resisting the devil, Um, being sober-minded and alert is actually remarkably similar to another passage in James 4. And we would call this a parallel passage. In James 4, 6 through 10, he says, he quotes the exact same, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He quotes that same verse, and then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. So James and Peter are on the same page. We should probably get on that page. Um, So the last part of this section, Peter now launches into this benediction-style type thought. Um, A benediction is like a closing thought. Imagine you're at the end of church, and it's like, and this is what I'm sending you out with. So Peter says, be alert, be sober-minded. The enemy is prowling like a lion. Resist him. And then Peter says, look to God, the God of all grace. He says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. We're done. I'm just kidding. It sounds like it, though, right? It's like, yes, yes. To him be dominion forever. Amen. We're done. Hallelujah. Um, But he's not done. There's, There's some closing greetings, so... He could have ended with a bang. He didn't. Um, but essentially, he says, you're resisting the devil. You're standing firm in the faith. Look to the God of all grace. And God will do all of these things. It's like Peter's running out of verbs. He's like, he's going to restore you. He's going to establish. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to support you. And I'm like, those are, I think they're overlapping a little bit. And it's like, it's like when you're, you're struggling to describe, God is going to do all of these things. He's going to restore anything that was broken or, or taken from you in suffering. That God will establish this idea of a, a position, that we are part of the royal priesthood of believers. In chapter 2, Peter says that, that God will establish our position. It says that he will strengthen us. God will overcome any weakness or inadequacy that we face in this life. He will support us. He will do all we need when Jesus returns. 
Peter reminds us that all will be made right when Jesus returns. And he says, to him be dominion forever. Power and authority and rule is God's alone. Both now and in fullness when Jesus comes back. Whether we see it or feel it right now in our suffering or not. All things are under God's dominion. God is on the throne. This last section is closing greetings. It's kind of the like sincerely. And then Peter says, Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter finishes by talking about the carrier of this letter, Silvanus, which I don't know if he like, had a nickname, but this is Silas. I was like, what? Is this how Silvanus, Silas, maybe it's a nickname, I don't know. But Paul and Silas, that should sound familiar. Paul and Silas were very close ministry partners. So Silas is the carrier of this letter for Peter. And Peter says that his purpose in writing is to encourage them and to testify that this is true, that God's grace to us is true. And then he finishes by saying where he's from. But if you know anything about history, whenever he says that she who is in Babylon, I'm not very good at geography, but Babylon does not exist anymore when Peter is speaking. The city of Babylon, it's donezo. It's gone. There's no Babylon. Um, So is Peter just like longing for the days of Babylon? No. Okay, Peter's a smart guy, Um, and he's using this symbolically. So Babylon was thought to be the center of the empire, and also really of like pagan culture, um, hostile to God. And so he's writing from Rome, which is the center of the empire. So when he says Babylon, he means Rome. Um, And when he says she in Babylon, he's talking about not him, obviously, alone, but speaking about the church. The church in Rome sends you greetings. Mark, his spiritual son, gets a shout-out um, as also sending greetings. And then Peter reminds them to greet one another with the kiss of love. He's saying, in the family of God, there should be warmth. There should be intimacy. There's connection in the family of God. And then he ends the exact same way that he began. Peace to all of you in Christ. Should sound familiar because... At the very start of chapter 1, he says, Grace and peace to you be multiplied in Christ Jesus. I love when things just bookend like that. It's like, Peter, great job, dude. Um, that's chapter 5. That's First Peter. We just finished First Peter. Um, and Peter covered a lot of ground, right? If you're like, she's always just going so fast, and she gets to the end, and it's like, deep breath. Maybe it's just me running out of breath, but... Uh, he talks about elders. He says, elders, this is how you should lead, in humility. And he says, all of you who are not elders, this is how you should be. Be subject, be humble. Then he says, clothe yourselves with humility. And then he says, humble yourself before God. And then he reminds us of the truth about who God is. So it seems like if Peter's asking the question, how do we live faithfully in light of the gospel, it seems like humility has a lot to do with that in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I want to ask this question and like to like take a step back. 
what does it actually even mean to be humble? What does it truly mean to be humble? And why is this such a big deal for Peter? He talks about it over and over. He says it like back to back, like, bro, you just said that. We get it. Humility. Why is this such a big deal to Peter? So we're going to take a break. You guessed it. You're like, great transition, Rachel, ending on a question. Uh, We're going to take a break. So go to the bathroom, get a drink. We'll come back, and then we'll talk about that. She's going to answer the question for Yes. So glad you've been thinking about that question all of the break, right? Thanks, Alexia. Yeah, you should come. It's going to be really fun. So come to Winter Formal. Okay, so I'm prepping for the message. Get this in your mind. I'm in my office with Randy, dead ahead. We just look into each other's eyes, and I just glean wisdom from Randy. Just kidding. She wasn't there. Um, But I was thinking about it. Uh, I'm prepping for this message. I'm like, oh, wow, this has a lot a lot of humility in it. Um, so I'm thinking about humility. I'm thinking about pride. I'm thinking about messages that I've heard about humility and pride. And all of a sudden, it was like, I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit, maybe. I probably wouldn't have thought of this myself, so definitely. Um, I just remembered this one sermon. I have no idea how old I was. I'm going to go on the younger side because it's more embarrassing. So maybe I'm like 11 or 10. And I remember hearing this sermon and the, the pastor saying, watch out for pride. Watch out for pride. Check yourself on pride. And I remember thinking like, okay, I think I'm good. (laughs) Like, I didn't say that out loud because, obviously, but I was like, you know, like, I think I'm like, I think I'm good in this area, and I'm pretty humble for the most part. I mean, like, you know, like when I score soccer goals, like what am I supposed to do? Like obviously I'm going to celebrate. But other than that, like I'm pretty good when it comes to pride. Um, and I'm sitting in my office and I'm just thinking of that moment. And I was like, oh, 11-year-old Rachel. Because the irony of it is me thinking I don't have a problem with pride just showed the problem that I had with pride. Um, pride and humility has always been a challenging thing for me. You can ask my family about that. Um, My mom has told me a lot of times, you're prideful. Stop being prideful. Um, So it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. And I think that actually I'm not the only one. I'm not just saying this to make myself feel better, but I think our culture actually struggles a lot with humility. Humility is not popular. Not now, probably not ever, but definitely not now. Um, I don't think we would say, I really like prideful people or I just love having arrogant people in my group project. No one would say that. But pride is kind of like a good thing right now. And I don't just mean uh, in relation to Pride Month or, or things like that. I'm just talking about generally. Um, I'm not going to get on a social media soapbox, but if you want to hear it, you just let me know, and I'll give it to you. Um, as a former marketer, I have thoughts on social media. Um, but social media is just an image curation factory. We get to pick what parts of us we want to show the world, the right angles, the right filters, whatever type of content you guys think is funny or inspiring, and I'm going to put that out there, and I kind of have this version of myself that people like, that they follow, that they share my content. And everything in culture encourages us to embrace who we really are, and you need to put you first, right? You need to take care of yourself. Because no one else is going to take care of you. You need to take care of yourself. 
And maybe that's true in some sense, but I, I saw this article title, don't be fooled, I didn't read the article or anything, I don't frequently read Forbes magazine, but I just saw it, okay, I just saw it. Um, and this was the title, let me get this right. When humility gets in the way of your success. That was the title. That's why I didn't read it. Um, but, and who has time for Forbes? Come on. Um, but I think that's the way our culture views humility. We see it as something that's going to get in the way of achieving true success or true value. It's something that could lead to you missing out or, worst of all, getting taken advantage of. That If you're too humble, you're going to miss out. And you're not going to make it. You're not going to be successful if you're too humble. And it just, it seems like Peter has a very different understanding of humility than 11-year-old Rachel, maybe Rachel now, and culture today. Um, read this again. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. We're not done reading. We're going to just keep reading. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. So Peter instructs us to clothe ourselves with, humilities, with humility and to humble ourselves before God. And he says that we should do this, casting our cares on him. So that's part of being humble, because God cares for you. I have never seen this connection before. Once again, I'm in my office. Randy's there this time. I'm reading a commentary, and this brilliant guy, he points this out. He says there's a connection between humility and understanding who God is. I was like, Randy, you have to listen to this quote. I was like, this is definitely going in the lesson after I'm done being convicted by it. And spoiler, it's in, but I'm not done being convicted by it. So you're welcome. Um, but... Humility has something to do with understanding who God is. And if that's true, then it follows that the opposite of humility, pride, is fundamentally a misunderstanding and a mistrust of who God is. I'm going to tell you three things about pride, and they're going to be remarkably similar. So just keep your notes ready. That's the first one. Pride is fundamentally a misunderstanding and a mistrust of who God is. I'm not making this up. Think to Genesis 3. You can turn there if you want. If you're like, uh, I thought of Genesis 3 and nothing has come to my mind. That's okay. I'm going to tell you what happens in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. He creates a perfect world. He creates humans. Everything is right and good. There's no sin in the world. And Genesis 3, boom. We didn't even make it to 3. And it's Eve and Satan in the garden. The, listen to this conversation. So God has given a command, and Satan, our enemy, our adversary, comes to Eve, and this is what he says. This is 3.1. Did God really say? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? Pause. With one sentence, one sentence, one question. Satan starts to distort the character and word of God. In one question, he starts to cast doubt about who God is and what God has said. But Eve, she's not stupid. Contrary to popular belief, Eve is not stupid. She knew what God had said, and she actually tells Satan this. She says, 
we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. So Eve knows. She said, no, no, you're wrong about that. God said we could eat from the other trees in the garden, just not the one in the middle. And then Satan goes from casting doubt on who God is and what God has said, and he straight up calls what God said a lie. He said, no, if you eat from the tree in the garden, you will, you will not die. Certainly you will not die. And in fact, if you eat of it, you will be like God. God is holding out on you. God is holding out on you. That's what Satan says to Eve. He says, you know, Eve, you actually, you can't trust God. You can't trust his purposes. You can't trust his design. God is holding out on you. He's not really good. The first sin in Genesis 3, I would argue, is pride. And Eve believes the lie, and here we are. Thanks, Eve. Um, (laughs) If it wasn't Eve, it would have been me, so it's okay. Um, These type of questions that Satan asked Eve in the garden, I think are actually really similar to the questions that Peter's readers would have been asking. They would have been asking questions like, can I trust that God is good when I'm suffering? When I'm being persecuted for my obedience to him? Even by my own friends and family. They would have asked questions like, can I really trust God's design for me to submit to authorities, to my master, to my bosses, to bad bosses? In marriage, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would I have to submit like that in marriage? Can I really trust God's design in submitting to elders? These are the questions that they would have been asking. And I think you and I ask these questions too. Maybe your questions sound like, can I trust that God is good when my friend died? When my parents are getting divorced? When my family mocks me for my faith? When I feel lonely? when I walk through depression or anxiety? Can I trust God's design for sexuality and marriage? It seems like no one else is on board with that. Can I really trust that? What if I'm missing out on the good life by obeying God and not partying and sleeping around? Is God holding out on me? Can I really trust God? And pride takes these questions, and like Satan said to Eve, he says, God can't be trusted. God is not good, and God will not take care of you. And this is why pride is a major misunderstanding and a mistrust of who God is. And when we have a misunderstanding about who God is, it infects what we believe about ourselves and about others with lies. This is the second thing. Pride is a misunderstanding of who we are. Because if we believe the the lie that God can't be trusted, that God won't take care of me, the question that inevitably comes is, if God won't take care of me, who will? And the answer to that is, I will. I have to. If God won't take care of me, then I have to. And when we believe that lie, it plays out in our lives in a variety of ways. At least I've seen it play out in my own life in a lot of ways. Often I try to achieve my own uh, worth or value or identity by doing things that I think others will affirm me in. 
I try to earn my identity because if it's me taking care of me, I got to make something of myself. I need to prove to other people I'm worth something because I have to take care of myself. It's me against everyone. Sometimes this lie plays out in seeking attention or affirmation from others, placing our identity in them, and we become dependent on other people for our joy and our happiness. And if it's me taking care of me, i got to lock down some people to help take care of me. And sometimes that manifests itself in manipulation or in controlling people so that they're affirming us or that we're in the relationships that we think we have to be in. Sometimes this lie plays out in isolating ourselves from ever truly being known. Because if it's me for me, and these people find out about my deepest struggle, or the fact that I'm not all that that I put out to the world, they're going to leave, and it's going to be me again. This is how pride, this misunderstanding of God, infects everything that we believe about ourselves with lies. And you can already see it. You can see the trickle-down effect. This is the third thing, is that pride is a misunderstanding of who others are. Because if God can't trust, I can't trust God to take care of me, and I have to take care of me, then other people are a threat. If I'm achieving my value and somebody else achieves something more, that's threatening to my identity. I need to achieve more. I need to get more money. I need to have a better job. Other people become a threat if I'm earning my own identity. We believe that others have to be the ones to take care of us. We become dependent on them for our own joy. And then when we experience relational tension or loneliness, it rattles us to our core. Why? Because we're believing lies about who we are, about who God is, about who they are. We believe the lie that we're just a burden to other people. That because I need to take care of myself, I can't ask for help. Because if I ask for help, you're going to have to help me. And who's taking care of you? I should be taking care of me. You should be taking care of you. There's no room to help each other if it's every person for himself. Pride infects our understanding of God, ourselves, and others with lies. And Peter comes and he says... Clothe yourselves with humility. Why? Because humility gives us a right understanding of who God is, of who we are, and who others are. I have really, really good news for you. In Genesis 3, Satan was wrong. Satan was wrong. Because God can be trusted. He is good, and he will take care of us. And if you're wondering, Rachel, how can you say that? How can you say that I can trust God when I'm experiencing suffering? How can you say that God can be trusted when things are so hard, when death and suffering and brokenness exist? I can say that because he proved it to us in Jesus. Romans 5.8 says it this way, But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I were rebelling against God himself, He was proving that he can be trusted, that he is good, and that he loves us because he sent his son to die for us. Jesus came and modeled humility unlike anyone ever will. This is how Philippians 2, 5 puts it. 
Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. That should sound like, hey, elders, lead by example, don't exploit your power. Taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who is God himself, came and he became a man, not exploiting his power, but being obedient to God's will, even unto death. He came to pay the price for my sin and your sin. He died the death that you and I deserved. The creator of the universe, I don't know if you're getting this, the creator of the universe, the almighty God, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, came and died. If that is not humility, I don't know what is. But not only did Jesus die the death that we should have died, but God through Jesus provided a way for us to have eternal life through Jesus' resurrection. And now those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus have the eternal hope of heaven. We can trust what Peter says, that God cares for us. God loves us. He is good. His plans and his purposes and his design are best. And we know that because he proved it to us in Jesus. Do you see how humility gives us a right understanding of who God is? And in the same way that pride trickles down, humility trickles down into how we understand ourselves. Because if that is true about Jesus and if that is true about God, then you and I have a new identity not one that we have to earn, but one that's been given to us. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are now children of God, part of the royal priesthood of believers. We don't have to earn our identities. We don't have to depend on the affirmation of others for our worth. We don't have to be afraid of being truly known because we know this, that we are loved deeply by the almighty God. Others are no longer a threat. Our hope and our joy is not in relationships, a future marriage or friendship. We can be known and confess our sins to our brothers and sisters because our identity is secure in Jesus. We can trust that God is caring both for us and for them so we can help each other. And it's only when we have this right understanding of who God is, who we are, and who others are, that we can truly be humble. As This is what Philippians 2, the first part, says in 3 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Peter says, humble yourselves under the hand of a mighty God. We are called to cast our cares on him, our suffering, our anxiety, our questions, our doubts. We are called to cast our cares on him, trusting that God himself will take care of us. And because of that, we walk in obedience to his word. We trust his character and his word, whether we're in suffering, whether we're submitting to governments or employers, in marriage, to elders, in the Christian life. We set our eyes on Jesus. Because like Jesus was humbled, 
and exalted and obedient. We trust that even as we live as exiles in this world, our humble obedience prepares for us the crown of life, unfading, unstained by sin and brokenness. And God will exalt us at the proper time, and it will all be worth it. It will be worth it. So humble yourselves before God, casting your cares on him, because he cares for you. Father, I thank you for who you are. That you are the almighty one. That we can trust that you love us and you care for us. That your purposes and your plan and your design and your word is best because of Jesus. Father, I pray that if there are people in this room who have not humbled themselves before you to recognize the truth about who you are as king and humbled themselves before you as children of the Most High King, Father, that they would humble themselves tonight and that they would experience the joy and peace that comes from knowing that you care for them. Father, I pray for those of us who have experienced this, who are following you, that we would come again to the cross, that we would humble ourselves, that we would bring our anxieties and our cares before you, that we would look to you, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and that we would trust you and walk faithfully until the very end, knowing that it will all be worth it. Father, to you be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're going to sing together and turn our eyes upon the one who is worthy.